Um, we are currently preaching through the New Testament book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible or a device, you can go ahead and turn to Acts 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Or you can follow along on the screen behind me as well. So the verses that we're looking at this morning, these are really a transition in the early part of Acts. So up to this point thus far, we've kind of seen some movement occurring. So much of the religious life within Israel was located in the temple, okay? And authority then was located in the religious leaders of Israel. But now we're seeing this shift that's happening in the beginning chapters of Acts where the religious systems of old are passing away and now authority is happening within Jesus' church. So authority has been vested in this group of 12 apostles, which we'll talk a little bit more about this morning. So these individuals who have been selected by Jesus, they are leading. They are healing people by Jesus' name. They are speaking authoritatively and preaching. So we see transition happening in the authority and how it's being exercised within the church. But we also see it happening in the opposition that's being felt by the early church as well. So it's been progressively increasing, the opposition that they're feeling. And we are heading to one of the very dark spots in all of Acts in the next couple of chapters. And so in the midst of all of this, though, God's Spirit is moving in a profound way. People by the thousands are believing in Jesus. Healings are rampant. Sacrificial love and generosity are common amongst Jesus' church. There's uncommon boldness that is pervasive. So what is happening in Jesus' church in those days cannot be scientifically explained. No no one could kind of create a scientific experiment and say, this is why this is happening. There are supernatural things that are occurring within that early church. But in the midst of this supernatural movement, what we're going to find today is that even the days of goodness and prospering bring about challenges for the church. So let's read Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read the first seven verses for us. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for these passages of Scripture, which maybe at first blush, it's like, where is Jesus in there? I pray that we would be able to see him as we work through these passages. But thank you so much for the ways in which you worked early on in these early days of the church to demonstrate your power, to show your faithfulness. And this is, these are things that you're continuing to do today as well. Help us today to experience your power as you convict us of sin as you fill us with boldness to do things that otherwise we would not do, to fill us with faith so that we can make decisions in life that are not easy. Allow us also to see your power move forward so that the gospel might advance in our lives and through Center Church as well, so that we can see many become obedient to the faith as well. God, help us to see Jesus for who he is. Help us to understand what your church is intended to be, who we are intended to be as your church. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Okay, I want to begin this morning by making a few contextual comments about this section. So, verse 1 introduces us to the issue that's needing to be dealt with, right? The, the fact that there are some widows who are, are not being looked out for, right? And so this complaint then is, is being raised. But, but I want to first note how growth is at the core of the issue, okay? So there's a saying, maybe some of you have heard this saying, I think it's true, that healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. Okay, you, you might look at me and be like, man, you must have been a really healthy individual, all right, when you were young. My mom would say, no, it's probably because I ate a lot of candy that I'm so tall, but there's no explanation for it. But in our American context, we've placed most of our emphasis on growth in the direction of quantity. Okay, that, that's how we oftentimes see growth in numerical realities. And I do think that healthy things will grow numerically, but not always. That's not always the case. There will be times when healthy things contract for a variety of reasons. So we can't just say, oh, that thing is growing, so obviously it's healthy. Sometimes unhealthy things grow as well, right? They're growing for the wrong reasons. But at other times, healthy things are going to contract as well. So Growth can happen in terms of quantity, for sure, but also in quality as well, right? So a church, maybe, isn't necessarily exploding numerically, but that doesn't mean a church shouldn't be or can't be growing in quality, in believing the gospel. So if someone wants to run a mile in six minutes, but their current best time in a mile is eight minutes, the key to them running a mile in six minutes is not to just keep running over and over, like hours every day, okay? 24 hours a day. That, that's not how someone will get to cutting two minutes off their mile, okay? 
someone is going to need to rest, right? That's going to be part of the equation for them. Maybe they're going to have to change the way that they eat and train in order so that they can cut time off of their mile. So growth takes time. Growth takes patience. Growth takes intention. Growth won't always, usually doesn't happen at the pace we would like growth to occur. Now, as it pertains to the early church, when we look at what's going on here, and and we can say in Jesus' church in general as well, there's also this aspect of the Holy Spirit. The the church needs to rely on God's Spirit. The, The Bible tells us that God is the one who causes the growth in His church. But then the church, the people who are part of the church, who make up the church, they also play a role in all of this as well. And that's what we see happening in our verses today. So verse 1 is saying that growth caused a problem, right? We we typically think of, of problems being caused by negative things, right? But what's happening here in Acts 6 is that problems are being caused because good things are happening, right? So growth is causing the problem. But then, after the issue was addressed, at the end of these verses, it says that the church continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Okay? So, verse 1, we're hearing about an issue. Verse 7, we're hearing the word continued to increase. Right? Multiple, or, or disciples were multiplying greatly. Okay? So, Something then was happening in the middle that was allowing this for, for it to happen. And obviously we would say, obviously God's working. But we get to look and see how they were responding to this as well. So let's talk about the issue a little bit here. So we read here about Hellenists and Hebrews. Okay, so those could be confusing for us because maybe we're like, I have no idea what that's talking about, right? So both of these groups of people are typically thought to be referring to Jewish people, okay? So Hellenists would be Jewish people who are speaking Greek and have largely been formed by aspects of Greek culture, okay? And Hebrews would be Jewish people who speak Aramaic and have largely been formed by Jewish culture, Okay, but, but we can see really clearly here why there might be an issue going on, right? When you bring cultures together, this is a natural point of contention, right? Like, when you grow up in a culture, you can think, like, this is the right way to do things, right? And someone else grows up in a different culture, and they look at that, and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, that, that's not at all how you do things. And it's not that either one is wrong, right? But it's just that... Cultures have different ways of doing things. Uh, I was thinking about this. So uh, the overseers were talking recently, and um, someone in my family used the word ish. Has anyone heard the word ish before? Like that's ishy or that's ish? Okay, so some of you, this is apparently a Midwestern thing, Okay. We didn't realize this because we have a couple of overseers who are not originally from the Midwest, okay? And so they're like, what is that word? Like, did you make that up? Is that even in the dictionary? Okay, but yes, ish is actually a word. And so 
you guys, like there's other people nodding their heads with me like, yes, this is actually part of Midwestern culture. Okay, so then, verse 1 then is referring to a daily distribution, okay? So a daily distribution was happening within the early church where essentially it was a way in which the early church was caring for widows, right? So they, they saw that these widows typically would be women because in a patriarchal culture, right, they've lost their husbands and they've got no way to provide for themselves. And the way, the way that maybe a woman, a woman might flourish in our culture, they didn't have the same opportunities in the first century culture. And so they saw how these widows had no one to provide for many of their needs. And so they're, they're saying, okay, we're going to help provide for the daily food. So they provided for them. In this, the Hellenist widows are seemingly getting overlooked. So then it says that a complaint is raised. Now, we tend to think of a complaint as merely a negative thing. And there could have been aspects to this as being negative here in this story, but it doesn't appear to be solely negative. Even if it was negative, what we can find here is that the response was thoughtful. And it was measured. And so then the response is being made by the 12, okay? So the 12, these are the 12 individuals who were near to Jesus. And they were charged with planting the first church and preaching the gospel. So what they do then is they collaborate. They come together and they're, they're like, we got to figure out this problem. Now, they know that they could handle the task of caring for the widows in this way. But if they are going to care for them in this way, it's not going to come about without a cost. And they understand that they have been called to pray and to preach the gospel. They realize that they would be unable to do both of these things. And so they identify seven men to handle this task of coordinating the distribution of food in such a way that will account for all of these widows. Now, it's good for us to acknowledge that the 12 could have decided, all right, we're going to be part of this food distribution, and that wouldn't be wrong. It wasn't wrong for them to be part of the serving of food. This isn't a call for those in power to not have to do the things they consider below them. It's not a way in which they can just get out of doing the things they don't want to do. They're making this decision because they, they're called to preaching. And they want to stay committed to doing that and to praying for the people. So we've got to be really clear about what they're choosing to do. They're choosing to do the thing that's gotten them arrested, that's gotten them beaten, threatened with death, imprisoned. So they're not choosing to do this and in so doing taking the easy way out. Okay, this is a hard decision. So if we are honest about what's going on here, this would seem like a really good opportunity for them to take themselves out of harm's way. If they wanted to do that, this was the perfect time for them to do that. They could point at this and say, well, these women need to be taken care of. We're just going to cover this need and let some others take over the preaching aspect. But that's not what they do. 
They are exemplifying what we would call servant-hearted leadership. Servant-hearted leadership. Okay, and this is something that we value here at Center Church as well. Okay, you're not going to be in a a role, what we call overseer, spiritual leader here, if you're not willing to serve others, if you're not willing to come underneath others. You're not in spiritual authority here so that you can look down on people, okay? That, that's not what spiritual leadership is. That's not what servant-hearted leadership is. So it's not wrong for them to care for the widows in this way. But it could be good for them to peek in and help out every so often so that they can see what's going on, so that they're able to connect with the seven, so that they can know the struggles that are being faced, so that they can interface with recipients and remind themselves of the work that the seven are doing. When my kids were younger, so our oldest is now in ninth grade and our youngest is in second grade. So when our kids were younger and we had like toddlers and babies, there were a few occasions, and my wife probably would say she wished there was more, but when I would send her away, maybe for the day, maybe for a night, maybe for a few nights where she could just get away. And, and part of this was for her to just get a break because young kids are intense and it's tough, right? You lack sleep and it's just hard in a lot of ways, okay? So part of it was for her, but part of it was for me as well because I needed to be reminded what was she going through every single day because she was a stay-at-home mom. So she wasn't leaving the house during the day, right? So this was her every day. So one of the things I detested when kids were young was cutting food. Like, I, I just hated doing that. And I was so thankful that she was willing to do that, okay? But I had to cut food, and I was reminded how much I disliked it. And how, I, I was also reminded how, how thankful I was that she did this, okay? When I was changing all the diapers taking care of all the schedules, getting kids where they needed to go to bed at the various times, losing sleep myself, okay? I was reminded of all the things that my wife was doing for our family, how she was sacrificing for us. And so when she would come back, I would always tell her, it was so good for me to be reminded of what you go through, walk through, you do for our family day in and day out, all the sacrifices that she was making. And this is something that we want to embody here at Center Church also. We never want to be a church context where the individual who is preaching is sitting in a green room before the service, before they talk, insulated from the people that they're talking to. And then when they're done talking, they're rushed off the stage with no interaction after the fact. It's good for me to help with setup. It's good for me to understand the sacrifice people make week in and week out. But it's also not good if I'm burning out because I'm setting up and then leading the service and then tending to needs after the service. That's not good either. So the overseers have told me that I need to ensure I'm spending 
more time connecting with people at the end of the service than I am tearing down. So if you ever wonder why there's this invitation for communal teardown at the end of our time together, and then I'm standing around talking to people, that's why, okay? But this is also why we invite you to communal teardown. If the same people are tearing down that are setting up, it can, and this happens week after week after week, It can feel like we're taking advantage of them or that we don't appreciate what's being done. Communal teardown is a way in which we as a church can be the church. We can love and serve one another. We can say thanks through our actions to those who are here every week setting things up. And set up and tear down needs to happen, right? You want to sit on a chair. Even if that chair is hard, you want to sit on a chair. It's not unimportant. It's not even less important than preaching. It's just that different people are called to and able to fill certain functions. So you might be terrified to preach, but it's not hard to put chairs on a rack. So the seven that we're reading about here in Acts Six, they weren't called to preach. At least not yet, they weren't. They were called to care for the widows in the distribution of food. And healthy churches should be organized this way. There should be a sharing of responsibilities. So at Center Church, we have overseers who oversee the spiritual health and care for our church. And then we have a ministry team. Maybe you've heard these people referred to as deacons in other church contexts to help facilitate ministry at Center Church. We need people to teach kids, to run sound, to lead in music, to set up and tear down, to greet, to lead community groups, to encourage others, to plan and run events, to administrate, to revamp a website, which is happening, thankfully because it really needs it, to handle finances. And the list goes on and on. All of this is intended to be shared amongst the church. This is how a healthy church functions. And and we, we realize as leaders that you're not always going to be excited about the commitment you made to serve. You might wake up some mornings and be like, oh, I'm really tired, or this has been a really hard week. But that's part of what makes it sacrificial, of what makes love sacrificial. So Jesus wept and was in agony over his choice to sacrificially love sinners. It hurt. It was hard for him. It's the sacrifice that makes sacrificial love beautiful. Yes, it's hard, but that's, what's ma- that's what makes it beautiful as well. And in all of this, it's good for us to be reminded that church is not about us. Okay, church is for us, yes, but it's not about us. It's about Jesus. So, in the midst of our serving, in the midst of our church experience, it's good for us to feel weakness. It's not good 
for anyone to be overburdened in serving. It's not good for us to view church in a consumeristic way. Church is a living, breathing organism. It's not something we just attend, that we go to. Church is who Christians are, our identity as followers of Jesus. We are Jesus Church. So it's good for the church to function together in ways that display the unifying beauty of the gospel. And that that means we can't just be a bunch of individuals doing our own thing. That's why one of our core values is community. We, We want you to know one another, to know what makes each other tick, to know our weaknesses. And that comes through confession of sin, sharing vulnerability. But it's good for the church to function together in ways that display the unifying beauty of the gospel. And this is what we see at the end of Acts 6. And this is really the reason for all of this activity. That the word of God would increase. Here, yes, and the rest of our lives as well. That the number of the disciples would multiply greatly. So, what we're doing here, we're not doing it just to check the religion box. We don't want you to be here or serve because it's your duty to do it. It's not to repay people who've taught our kids the week before. For sure, we want to acknowledge their sacrifice and we want to thank them. And, and you, if you have kids and you're going to go pick your kids up, I want to encourage you to thank the teachers, okay? You can thank the people who are running sound and tech for us. You can thank the people who are leading us in worship. But don't feel guilted into doing the same. We're not doing this because we're good people or because we want to make our children morally upright kids. The point in what we're doing here is that people would get glimpses of Jesus, that they would hear the good news of Jesus. And this is what we want to do week after week, because you're all walking in, dragging yourselves in in some ways, because you need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. Ultimately, we want to remind ourselves and others what Christianity is about. It's about moving people from death to life. It's about raising people from the dead. Christianity is not about moving people from bad to good or from good to better. That's not Christianity. It's about taking dead people and making them alive. Death to life. So that's our hope at Center Church, that we would see the Word of God continue to increase in our hearts, that we would see Jesus for who He is, and that the followers, the number of followers of Jesus would multiply greatly. And and not because we're working so hard, but because we're pointing to Jesus. Jesus is compelling us, and Jesus is working through us as well. And so I want to close our time this morning by taking a moment to just observe a couple of ways, ways in which we can see Jesus in these verses here in Acts 6. So, as we close, okay, this is gospel application. 
right? We, we want to define what we do here. We don't want to just assume, okay, we do gospel application and just assume like everyone knows, even though we try and say this week after week, okay? We want to be explicit about these realities. You don't need to hear how you need to be better, okay? This goes back to our gospel primer, okay? It's not about the works that you do. The works that God calls us to, that Jesus said he wants from us, is to believe in him. That's what we're called to, to believe the gospel. And so we want to see Jesus for who he is. We want to see him as the impressive one, be captured by him, and then place our faith in him. So a couple of ways in which we see Jesus in these verses. So first of all, the daily distribution. Okay, the daily distribution. You might be like, well, how in the world? Okay, well, all of us need a daily distribution, right? So this is our philosophy of ministry. We need to hear the gospel over and over. We need the gospel distributed to us over and over. But this is what Jesus says in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is talking about himself here in physical terms, right? He's talking about himself being bread. And he's saying, I am bread that carries true life. I am true life, is what Jesus says. I am the daily distribution that you need to come to, that you need to believe in. So believe in me, and you will find life like you've never found it before. And ultimately, the one who believes in Jesus finds eternal life as well. Life which means something for us here and now, which invokes hope in our hearts here and now, but then also that carries us on forever for eternal life. So as these individuals are daily distributing food to these widows, it's a call for us, a reminder Jesus is the daily distribution that we need spiritually as well. So go to him. Believe in him. And then secondly, this idea that these individuals were serving tables. There's nothing impressive about what they're doing. A lot of people could probably do this function, right? They're simply serving tables tables. They're simply giving reflections of who Jesus is. Because Jesus said in Mark 10, he said, I, have, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus did. He was a table server as well. Following Jesus does not need to be impressive. But this is also intended to be really encouraging for us. 
that Jesus invites us to come and sit at his table. And he is the one then that puts on the servant's robe, willing to wash our feet, willing to clean us, willing to give us food. It's an amazing thing that the God who is over everyone and everything comes below us and loves us and serves us. It's mind-blowing. And I think maybe in our American mindset, we, we just kind of fall into this way of thinking, oh, of course Jesus would do that. It's kind of what he does. But he's perfect in every way. Like he's humbling himself to come to us. This is a massive step that he looks on us. And I don't know your heart like I know my heart, but I'm a messed up dude. And he looks at me and he says, I'm going to come under you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to care for you. Not because of anything I've done. Actually, in spite, despite what I've done. He comes to us. And he serves us. And he loves us. Seeing Jesus for who he is will change our lives. It will radically change us. Move us from death to life. And in that, as we're captured by who Jesus is, we will serve others as he has served us. We will love others who don't deserve it. And we will love them in sacrificial ways because Jesus has first loved us. The gospel will advance in our hearts and the gospel then will advance through our lives as well. The gospel will grow. It will advance. Now, as we see in these verses, it will be hard. It will be filled with challenges. As Center Church grows, it, it will cost us. We will have to let go of preferences. But anything we give up for Jesus is worth it. Anything we give up for Jesus is worth it.